Hey, I'm Ryan. I've managed products at innovative companies like Weebly and Verb, and now I run my own. Each episode, I talk with product managers at some of the most successful companies in the world to learn how they do customer research, gather insights, and make the product decisions for both their customers and company. You'll get real world advice on how to ship products people want and love. Now let's get into people-driven products. Welcome, Adam. Thanks so much for joining us today. You've had a lot of experience as a product manager for companies like Everfy, Granicus, and SHL. Now you're the director of product and design at Shift, where you led the overall product strategy and managed the product team. So we're very excited to hear your thoughts on what it takes to make great people-driven products. Can you kick us off by sharing a little bit about what led you to Shift and what it's like working there? Very happy to, Ryan, and thanks for the opportunity to be on the show. Uh, really excited to be part of this. So I joined Shift about two and a half years ago. Uh, it was the fall of 2018. Actually, the opportunity kind of kind of came out of nowhere. So I sort of friend of mine, not not even really a friend, sort of an, an acquaintance of mine that I, you know, we, we had added each other on LinkedIn at some point in the past, was at the time an engineer at Shift and had joined the team pretty early on. And uh, we hadn't spoken in, in years, right? And he... Uh, Shift was looking for a, a kind of first real product management hire, and he sent me a LinkedIn message out of nowhere and said, hey, I see that you're a product manager. We're looking for product managers. Are you interested in talking about this? You know, that was kind of an unexpected message to receive, but my first reaction was, I'm not a car guy. Why would I go work for this used car company? Like, that's not that's not my thing. But I was intrigued by, and kind of what's kept me really kind of going all the, the, you know, all the time that I've been at shift is, is the vision, right? The vision of the company, which is to make car purchase and ownership simple and trustworthy for everybody, right? So sort of take this famously terrible customer experience around buying or selling a used car, right? Everybody knows it's going to be a terrible experience, right? You're going to have to negotiate. You're going to deal with a kind of slimy car salesman. You don't know if you're getting a good deal. You don't know if you're getting a good car, right? There's just all of this negative stuff that happens in this process for most people. And here was this company shift that was trying to create something better for the customer, right? Trying to build a, a service model that was that was more aligned with what the customer needed and wanted, that, that, that wasn't just trying to sort of extract value from that transaction with the customer, but create value for them. You know, it was really that customer focus that drew me in in the beginning and sort of overcame my initial <laughs> reaction of like, I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> why would I why would I go work for this company? And so the opportunity to create something better to reach potentially millions of people with that experience was really exciting to me. So so yeah, that's what drew me in from the beginning and and as I said has kind of been the the motivator for me for the last almost 3 years now. Very exciting and all of us are familiar with Shift. I see the billboards all over the place and just love the witty humor, so they're certainly getting attention. And so you were the first product management hire at Shift, and so you really had to help define the role. And then how have you seen the role change over time? So we did have a couple of people with with product management kind of job titles at Shift when I joined, right? So there were a few people who were sort of really strong contributors in other departments that had kind of gotten field promoted into, into product management roles. They were really smart people, just didn't know the craft and the techniques and the skill set of, of product management. So when I joined, the, you know, the big challenge was essentially how do we take an organization that has never really had a strong product management function 
and create space for product managers to come in and do what product managers do, right? And sort of drive, be the voice of the customer, drive strategy for what we build and how we build it and how we align opportunities to solve problems for the customer and create value for the business, right? And kind of create those win-win situations. That has evolved a lot over the past two and a half years, to say the least. We're now up to, I think, 11 or 12 people on the product management team now. So we have a lot more capacity now and sort of understanding how we can combine the best of technology and people and processes and putting those things all together to create a business, create a service that our customers love, that is really scalable, that's really efficient, right? And so for me, that that really meant kind of taking what I had learned in other organizations about where product fits into that larger landscape of stakeholders and, and contributors, how to engage well, right? Building, I think relationships kind of have become a, probably the biggest focus for me in, in product is just understanding who I'm working with, what they need, what they want, what makes them successful and how product can contribute to that, how I personally can contribute to that, right? And so I think that was a, a really important path for me to, to go down in those early days where we were creating the space for the product team to grow. It's really remained a strong focus for me and for the team, I think, because product is such an integrative function, right, that pulls together so many different teams and and functions and and kind of resources in the company. So. Yeah, and then such a unique role to being the first product management hire, someone with maybe with formal experience prior. And I joined Weebly as the first product management hire. I remember the first day an engineer asked, Why are you here? <laughs> and it was 40 people, and there was about 15 engineers, maybe 20 engineers, and no one knew why I was there. They had never had a product manager at the company before. Then my second day, the engineering team launched a new Google authentication as a login and, and registration option, but they hadn't thought about how you have to merge the account if someone has already created a standard email address and password account. So we were creating duplicate accounts with different email addresses. And the second day, another engineer comes up to me and says, this is your fault because <laughs> this had been launched and it was creating all these duplicate accounts. And it was not actually detecting that an email already existed for this user and an account already existed and then merging the Google auth and then the existing account. And so it was an interesting first week to say the least at the company. There are some unique areas and one that you know we'll be digging in today is really that user research process. And I think that's usually the one, the product manager looking at the data, whether it's behavioral, maybe it's revenue, maybe it's user research data, and then surfacing that to the team in addition to really looking through those launches and making sure that accounts in that case are merged. So excited to dig in with you about the re user research process at Shift. And I know a launch that you had recently, you're making a lot of changes right now on the vehicle detail page. And so I'd love to just kind of jump right in and hear a little bit about what you started with and how you really approached that problem as a company at Shift and what type of data sets you and your product management team were utilizing to really end up shipping that new and improved version. For our customers in particular, our vehicle detail page is probably the most important single page or single kind of view in our product, right? Because this is where... And if you think about what, a, what one of our customers is looking for, right? Well, what is the job to be done for them? It's that they want a car, right? They want a car that meets their needs, meets their budget, 
And what is the way that we can help them find a car that meets their needs and their budget is we can, the vehicle detail page is the answer to that question, right? It is the answer to, it is the way a customer determines, does this specific car have what I need? Is it at a price that I can afford and that I think is reasonable, right? And I think one of the things that we've seen over the years that Shift has been operating is that while there are there is a standard set of information about cars that many people look for, like, you know, mileage, does it have four-wheel drive, how many seats does it have, right? Kind of basic things like that. There's also a lot of variation, right, in terms of what specific people are looking for or what shoppers in a particular class of vehicles are looking for, right? People who are shopping for a truck are going to be interested in features that people shopping for a hybrid commuter car aren't interested in, right? And so I think understanding how to differentiate that information based on what a specific individual is interested in or based on kind of the, the relevant information based on sort of what car they're looking at, right, I think is, is one of the key challenges that we have. But I think what we found was that, you know, when we kind of started this most recent effort is that we were surfacing a lot of information to the customer, which meant that technically the information you're looking for is there, right? It is technically available to you, but it wasn't easy to find, Right. So if you were looking for information, right, one, one of the common examples that we've seen is Apple CarPlay, right? If you're an iPhone user and you're going to be in your car a lot, you want to be able to use those Apple CarPlay features and kind of connect your phone to your car and, and, and all the rich kind of interactivity that comes with that. And so for many people, they don't want to buy a car that doesn't have Apple CarPlay. And so one of the key questions for them is when they're looking at a vehicle detail page, when they're exploring a potential, potential car that they might buy is, does it have that feature? And, and our vehicle detail page at the time didn't make it very easy to find that information. You kind of had to like know where to scroll to and then what to click on and then what to scroll through again to sort of like find it kind of buried in the hierarchy there. But we found that through some of our research, right, and kind of talking to, to some of these users who were really fixated on that particular feature, it was a really kind of top level decision criterion for them, right? It's like, I literally don't want to look at cars that don't have this feature, don't waste my time, right? Like, like I know what's important to me. Tell me if it's there or not, right? And so, I mean, that's one example of a piece of information that we've now, in kind of the designs that we're working through, you know, shipping fairly soon, sort of highlighting some of those key features for cars that have those features that the customer is looking for. Apple CarPlay is one of those examples. And so I think in that process, right, in terms of how we got there, right, it was a combination of literally talking to customers, right? Getting on Zoom with them like we are here today and talking through, you know, what are your what are your criteria? How do you think about what's most important to you? What are the nice to haves and what are the need to haves, right? And how would you kind of rank the things that you're looking for? And conducting sort of a small number of those kinds of conversations so that we could have pretty deep interactions and, and a lot of back and forth kind of interview and probing to kind of understand really what's like, how do you mentally, psychologically approach this this decision? But then we also did a fair amount of surveying in, in the vehicle detail page itself, right? And I think that's where UserLeap really came in and, and was really helpful because we were able to deploy these surveys in context, right? And focus them on not hypothetical users who might be shopping for a car, but actual users who are actually searching for a car, who are actually on our website, right? So it's not lookalikes of our of our target users, it is the actual target users, right? So I think that was one of the the, the real strengths that usually brought to our toolkit when we joined the family. So we were using surveys both to get insights about what customers need. We also use it to evaluate, right? Are you finding the information you're looking for? 
what information are you looking for that you're not seeing and, and kind of identifying where those gaps were and what was working really well. And I think that was really helpful in understanding. We've always kind of looked at like conversion metrics, right? Are people who view a VDP booking test drives? Are they initiating online orders, right? Are they moving along in the process? But it's hard to understand the why without really talking to users and, and asking them directly and getting that, that feedback in, in context. And so it's just been tremendously useful to us uh, in that particular project. Awesome. And I love how you mentioned you're using usually to talk to actual people looking for a car. One of the you know situations that we lead that I remember is that we often went through, you know, traditional user research solutions and it was all hypothetical. And it was, you know, let's pretend you're creating an online store, but this person had no intent ever in their life of creating an online store. You know, maybe it was a doctor or maybe it was a lawyer or maybe it was someone who that just was not their passion in life of, you know, creating or, or their line of work. We always had to kind of plant these questions and situations and tell us about a time when, you know, that you expect to do this or this is hypothetical. And so I love that you're really digging into people who are actually considering you really hear and, and learn much faster that way. And I will say that your team is quite advanced in your research thinking. I'll just call this out for listeners of both doing the generative and the evaluative work of seeing, you know, hearing from the users first of what they're looking for and what's working and not working, and then actually measuring it once you've launched that. And so I'll give you a, a virtual round of applause here <laughs> or for just how impressed I am, I am on just doing both sides, the input and on the final product. Yeah. And so nice work there. So in terms of really talking to those users, was there anything that you maybe didn't expect? So you mentioned that they usually knew what they wanted. They wanted to quickly find when you're doing that generative work, was there maybe a hypothesis that your team had that you found maybe that was invalidated throughout that process? Nothing really specific in that one. Maybe I'll talk about a like maybe much more generative example, if that's okay on this one. We sell things on the internet <laughs> and, and people shop for those things on our website and in our mobile app, right? But one of the things that's pretty different for us compared to a kind of typical retailer is that obviously our prices <laughs> are high compared to, you know, a clothing retailer or something like that. You're, we're, we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, right? And frequency, right, for each person is much lower, right? Most people buy a car no more than every couple of years, right? So it's a kind of a long life cycle between purchases. And so for us, right, where many, many co companies uh, in the e-commerce space look at things like lifetime value and cart size and, and repeat purchases and things like that, those factors are pretty different for us, right? And so one of the things that we've tried to really understand is for the people who are coming to our site, are they actually in the market for a car, right? Because if they're not, then maybe we're not marketing properly, or maybe we just have a lot of people who are intrigued by what we're doing and want to come, come look at the site. But for those who, who are in the market for a car, how soon are they planning to make that purchase, right? Because I think that tells us something about both how quickly should we expect people to convert, but also what are their needs right now in the shopping process, right? Because for most people, I think we've seen in a lot of our kind of customer research that it's usually about three months from deciding like, okay, yeah, I need to, I need to get a car to I have purchased that car, right? And the things I need as a customer on week one of that three-month process are different than the things I need on week 12, week 15 of that, of that process, right? Where I, I, I know much more specifically about what I'm looking for. And so, you know, we've, we've recently run several surveys in our applications 
with our customers to sort of gauge how likely are you to buy a car, right? Two, if you are likely to buy a car, how soon do you think that's going to be? And I think it's it's been interesting to start to see how trends in the market impact the answers that we get from customers in, in those surveys, right? And we're in a, a context right now coming through, obviously, COVID, which turned the whole economy upside down, coming through some you know supply chain issues in the new car market that impact the used car market and sort of the, the dynamics there. And so we're seeing a lot of things happening in that space. And, and, and that is kind of impacting demand for our services and our cars, kind of the price sensitivity and elasticity that customers have. And so it's been really interesting to start to, to see over time how people respond differently to those questions about both are you in the market and, and sort of what percentage of visitors to our website actually are planning to buy a car and how quickly are they planning to buy a car. And I think we're starting to see right now some interesting things where because you know of the dynamics of market prices on used cars, some people are feeling like, hey, maybe I should wait a little longer until those prices settle back down. And so I think it's been really useful to have a tool that allows us to pulse check on those kinds of things in real time, not be like, hey, like, how do we know like how people are responding to this stuff? How do we know what people are thinking? Well, we can ask them, right? We can ask our customers, again, as we just, as we just talked about, ask real customers, not hypothetical customers, about how they're really feeling <laughs> as they're engaging with our, with our service. And so I think that's been another really interesting use case that we've found in, in that customer research area. Yeah, and how it impacts the business. And as you were talking, it reminded me of the new car shortage with the chips. The chips are driving increase in new car prices and a shortage. I think a lot of dealers now are actually out of several models of new cars. And so I imagine that those buyers will be pushed to used cars. And in your case, you know, slightly used or gently used, typically in a shift case. And so I can see how it would push up the pricing. But you end up with so many dimensions externally that are driving buyer behavior for shift. You're going to look at COVID. You're going to look at chip shortages. You're going to look at the market activity right now where we're still in a bull run. And so you're now able to actually quantify the impact on shift and then maybe get some intent data downstream, I imagine, on perhaps purchase behavior, knowing that it is that three-month cycle. And so... I can imagine the data would be really helpful for your team. And are there any specific examples that you can share of, is it really just kind of measuring and doing some forecasting or are there some other specific changes around You mentioned advertising and marketing potentially as well. I think we're still trying to get a pulse on exactly what the changes are in those kind of air perceptions. Um, I think what we are seeing is that, is that at least right now, there is a bit of a trend where customers are tending to want to wait a little longer because as you say that especially with the chip shortage impacting the new car market that has pushed a lot of demand into the used car space and that's pushed prices up for used cars and so i think that, you know we've even seen like news coverage that's like hey like now is a bad time to buy a used car <laughs> and we're like well no it's not not if you need one if you need a car you can't buy a new car right now it's a great time to buy a, a used car but I think we're, we're seeing how some of those external factors are impacting our customers and our business. And I think our ability to understand those, and not, again, not just understand them hypothetically or conceptually, but get a real read on how our real customers are reacting to those things, I think is, has, been really, has been really valuable to us, right? So yeah, so we're still kind of working through exactly how to kind of accommodate those changes and, and learn them fast enough to respond effectively before 
the tides turn again and things start going in a different direction. But again, I think having that direct access, that direct channel to hear from our customers, right, in contact, the real customer, right, has made a huge difference, right? These, these are things that before we had those tools, we wouldn't have even been able to access those insights, right? And when people get started with usually, I almost always recommend they start with an area of users they often don't hear from. And so I think that's a similar example where you always hear from the people where you have their address, maybe they've booked the test drive, maybe they've bought the car, you know, they'll be writing in, they'll be telling your team exactly what they think, if it was positive or negative. But the people that maybe haven't gotten there, you know, the ones who maybe don't get there, those are usually the ones. So usually for SaaS companies, we'll recommend an onboarding survey very early. Usually you don't hear from onboarded users. They're not really committed to your product. And it always reveals so many blind spots about the product because it's a group you don't hear from very often, but usually there's something that's bothering them. And it's usually something that you've already built or shipped, but it needs improvement. And so as you're describing that, I was nodding my head, just thinking, yes, that's <laughs> a great way to kind of uncover those blind spots and that that user base that you know you often don't hear about was something that you thought was gonna work okay, but perhaps is that opportunity that you didn't know about. And so, yeah, I just love how your team is thinking about it. And I think it's good to ask the tough questions. You know, like a lot of people are hesitant. We have customers who are hesitant to ask, to ask the product market fit question. It's a tough question if your product went away. But I'm sure, Adam, as you know, as a manager, when you're having one-on-ones with your direct reports, you have to ask the tough questions. I love to ask, are you happy at the company? You know, how are, what's not working for you? Instead of just steering them in the direction of how great things might be. Because you're not really going to learn if you don't ask the people that you don't hear from or the questions that maybe you're scared to ask. But I think as product managers, just like a normal manager, it is important to really go out there, ask those tough questions, reach out to those people that you don't hear from, even if you might know or you're not sure. And maybe it's your product area and you know it might not paint you in the best light, but you're at least surfacing it. You can take action and then you can improve the product. Yeah. And I think just to build on that a little bit, I think for me as a manager, I would say that that learning early in my career about human-centered design is probably the most useful thing I have, the most kind of informative thing I have had in my toolkit as a manager, as a people manager and as a stakeholder manager, because it really focuses on the importance of understanding the people that you're working with or creating a product for or designing for and empathizing with them, right? Understanding, right? So if I think about the team members I have who, who report to me, I need to understand where they're coming from. I need to understand what they are motivated by, what they're trying to accomplish in their career. Because if I don't understand those things or if I ignore those things, they're going to be unhappy because they're not going to they're not going to feel like I'm helping them achieve those things or that shift is helping them achieve those things. I think about that in the context of stakeholder management too where as I'm working with counterparts in marketing or sales or operations, I need to understand where they're coming from the same way that as a product manager or as a designer, I need to understand my user because I'm going to create things that if I don't understand them and what they need, the things I create aren't going to be effective. And the same for me as I working with, again, uh, another counterpart in the business, if I don't understand what they need, what's important to them, how they think, what they're motivated by, the ways that I communicate with them, the deliverables I share with them, or you know whatever the case might be, if I'm not understanding their needs properly, I'm not going to be effective in that part of my job. And I think that's been a really interesting 
as I've just kind of like been <laughs> learning the hard way on a lot of these things, right? At a fast growing company, I think that I keep coming back to that understanding people and empathizing with them, right? And adapting my approach to, again, whether that's people management or stakeholder management or product management or whatever that might be, adapting to the needs of the people that I'm working with has just been a huge, a huge help to me and something that I talk about a lot with my team. I love what you covered there because I, I would consider empathy probably the number one attribute for a great product manager. And you just definitely described it right there of the empathy of your user base, but also the empathy of your peers, knowing that the product manager often doesn't have the direct reports. The IC product manager does not. And so you have to really understand and empathize with everyone around you at the company then also with the users to really go out and try to understand them. It's not easy. I think a lot of people make assumptions or they don't talk to users enough because they think they know, but they don't know. And so going out there to really understand the users and certainly one of the keys. And so I'm curious, you know, taking the next step here as a product leader, how you build empathy throughout the org is that something that you explicitly hire for, or is that something that you just really ensure is instilled across your team? As I'm getting to know a candidate, I want to get signal that they that they don't just know that they should say they are customer focused, right? Or or that they don't just kind of say the right things, but that, that there are examples, right? Evident in in my interview and in my conversations with them of how they've really used a customer focus to inform the work that they've done, right? If they are asking thoughtful questions that process the things that I say, right? I talk a lot about shift. I talk a lot about the the role that, that a person's interviewing for. And so, you know, are they asking questions that sort of take a thing that I said and dig a little deeper or build on it or, or probe a little further on that, right? Because to me, that's a signal that they're listening well, that they're understanding me, that they're being thoughtful, that they're really interested in in the role and, and in the organization. And if I'm not seeing those things, then you know it's not necessarily a deal breaker, but it just it just starts to kind of to me, those are some of the indicators of both a skill set that I think product managers need around empathy, but also are good signals of like the level of motivation they have for you know this opportunity. And do they feel like this is something they're excited about that's aligned with what they're looking for? And are they asking the right questions that are going to give them confidence that this is the right opportunity for them. Cause I think that has got to go in both directions on the, both the, you know, the hiring side and on the, the candidate side. But then I think in terms of the team, once they, once they join, right. I try to bring that empathy perspective and the customer pr perspective into a lot of our both design and product meetings and reviews, right. We, we often do, sort of roadmap review and, and like feature or project reviews with, with product managers and their design partners. And I find myself in most of those <laughs> reviews asking about what user research has been done, asking about have these designs that you're showing me, have users seen these yet? And have you gotten <laughs> feedback, right? What did those users think about this? Is this just stuff that you guys think is a good idea and, and you haven't gotten to that point yet of kind of evaluating it? I mean, a simple one, I actually think is really important. So like many internet companies in 2021, most of our users are on mobile devices, right? And so are we designing mobile first and are we evaluating mobile designs with users in that process? Or are we indexing too much on desktop because it's 
bigger and prettier and easier to put more information on the screen, right? And so that's one of the things, again, that I sort of like make a point in all of those reviews to ask to start with mobile designs, to kind of specifically ask like what has been tested, what what in terms of the design decisions that we're seeing, like how much of this was based on insights, how much of this is based on best practices, how much of this is just sort of like, well, it needed to look like something, so this is what it looks like, right? Because it helps me to understand, again, as I'm trying to empathize with those team members, right? As I'm trying to understand where they're coming from to understand the context that went into those decisions and and give them a chance to surface their thinking and the work that they've done to kind of inform that process. Bring all that together, which is that's the difficult piece of the role is the synthesis. Users say this, you don't always want to do what they say, but you need to understand what they say, pull it into your experience, look at the business goals, look at the business strategy. And that's always that that art <laughs> involved in the product management role. But I do think that the empathy is the one that is really core to really that outcome, that great product outcome. And so it's great that, you know, you're really instilling that in, in your team. Yeah. And I think, I think it's intuition informed by empathy, right? Where it's like, I, I'm not just coming up with ideas because I'm a smart person, <laughs> right? I'm coming up with, I'm synthesizing actual insights from people with things I've learned in the past, with input from other people, other kind of team members, right? And it, it, so it's it's sort of that combination of factors, right? And then I think we find, and I, I imagine, you know, again, being in a, in a company that's grown really fast yourself, I imagine this is similar for you too, but we also have the other challenge of time pressure, right? Like everything needs to move quickly for us, right? We're working against the clock and trying to build a big and great and successful and profitable business. And and so there's urgency in all the work that we do. And I think that can sometimes put too much pressure on the empathy side of things where it's like, well, we don't have time to do more research or we decided not even try to do research or validation because we feel like we have to move really quickly. And so I think there again, there's there's like a judgment that product managers have to exercise to kind of think through where do I need to slow down and do more of that research because the solutions we have or the understanding we have of the underlying problems is not strong enough and, and we might just ship something that fails, right? Versus where do I need to make a bet and say, hey, like we could spend the next 10 years doing research on this. We've got two weeks to ship it. So let's do the best we can in the time that we have, ship the thing that we are most confident in, test it and learn it and iterate on it, right? Those are tough trade-offs to think through and there aren't always obvious right answers there. And so I think that's another area where I find myself as a as a leader in the in the team now kind of providing that level of guidance and, and helping my team think through those trade-offs that they can make on time and you know validation and further research and things like that. And knowing again kind of when to when to slow the roll a little bit and get a little more confident versus when to push and say, hey, like done is better than perfect. Let's 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 keep moving and and learning as we go. Yeah. And even internally, when I hear questions about, should we do X or should we do Y on decisions, how it should work, I'll often respond somewhere to you of, what do the users think? Just just bringing it back. And if there's a debate on how something should work, bring it back to the users. So I, I do think the user-focused, it's not you know user-driven, but user-informed. And particularly when it comes down to what's best for the business, what's best for the users, just kind of gut checking both of those, both sides. Ideally, you get both you know, aligned, but sometimes you just make some difficult decisions between one or the other. 
but yeah, it's great that, you know, you're keeping your team focused on the shift customers and ultimately it's going to have that long-term. I've always seen that long-term growth and just putting that strong word of mouth to wrap up here, which is our question that we always end with Adam, what's your top piece of advice for product managers who want to create products people love? For me, I really think it does come back to empathy. I can't think of a product that people have loved that has been created by accident, right? Or that has been created without an understanding of who those people are and what it is that they are going to love, right? And and what it will take to create something that people love. And sometimes, right, that is very heavy on intuition, right? Like if I think about something like I don't know, TikTok, right? Like, like 10 years ago, I don't think anyone would have thought that TikTok or a, you know, a short like video based platform like that would be all the rage and, and, and have kind of the pervasiveness among young, young people that it does today. But I think the creators of that product and the people that have been managing and iterating on it over the last years have really understood how to empower and kind of catch the zeitgeist, right? Like catch the imagination and the creativity of the of the users they have there, right? And I imagine, along with the intuition that has gone into that, there's been a ton of research. There's been a ton of exploration and digging deeper and not just assuming you got it right, but testing your way through it and really understanding how people are responding to what you've built. I think that if what you want to do is create something that people love, you got to know who those people are. You got to know what they love. You got to know what are the ingredients to things that they love so that you can create something that aligns with that. And ideally something that combines those factors in a new way that's exciting, right? Because I think that's what makes the difference between a product that's sort of like, okay, yeah, that's cool, versus something that people truly love, right? Is is that not just sort of checking all the boxes, but adding an element of surprise, element, element of delight to the equation there. I think for us at Shift, that is creating a used car buying experience that people love. Some people think it's impossible, right? Some people think like there's no way people are going to enjoy the process or love the process of buying a used car. But I think what we've seen over the last several years is that is that we can, right? We can when we put the customer first. Yeah, I love that. And empathy is one of our company values that usually we have five values. One of them is empathy just because for that reason, as a research platform and, and research company, you know, it's so important for us to demonstrate with that with our own customers and really you know, lead by example. So I love that that's your piece of advice. I think it's really, really great advice. And I think for anyone breaking into product management who's listening, that's usually that one really unique skill that you can demonstrate. Leaders like Adam here look for that in the interview and, and really make sure that those examples, you know, are very clear and apparent in the work that, you know, someone's working on. So yeah, I definitely love that you know, you're driving that empathy in the interview process. You're making sure that it's you know really core to your product team. And I think it is too. We think about my time at Weebly as a first PM joining. What's that one thing that I can bring that's truly unique? And no one was going out to the users. No one was talking to the Weebly users. No one was trying to understand what was working or not working for them and bringing that back to the team. A lot of the work that was done was a little bit through you know intuition at the company at the time. And so how can you really connect the users to the product development process and really bring their insights and sentiment into that process? And so I think for any product manager looking to really make that mark internally, that's also an area to focus on. 
Adam, really enjoyed having you on the podcast today and hearing your story, getting into product management and also how you define product management and some of the people powered insights that you've uncovered at Shift. And thanks again for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is great, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to request a guest or ask a question, email me at ryan at And if you need a tool that helps you get customer insights easier, faster, and more accurately, check out UserLeap. After my time managing products at other companies, I wanted a simpler way to do customer research, obtain insights, and use those insights to make the right product decisions. That's why I founded UserLeap. Our microsurveys help you get in-depth user insights in real time, understand the why behind your data, and ultimately ship the right thing for your customers. UserLeap is used by product managers at companies like Square, Adobe, and Dropbox, and it's super simple to get started. Try it free or learn more at userleap.com.